By now, you're probably on your third stay-at-home COVID-19 zombie apocalypse script, or at least your third draft. And that's what you should be doing. You shouldn't be going outside. So naturally, you should be thinking about how to film this movie and then actually going and filming this movie in a low-budget way. And in this episode, we have probably one of the best people to give you some advice about low-budget filmmaking, and that's Doug Campbell. And I don't mean low-budget filmmaking, like let's tape a camera to a 2x4 and run through the forest. I mean somebody who's making lower-budget films for movies of the week, overseas films, films that are actually being produced, paid for, and distributed on things like Netflix and seen on television. Somebody that knows how to get a movie made. Something very important. And Doug is probably one of the best instructors you're going to meet at the Academy of Art, and really just a good guy in general. And I took his class, and my co-host in this particular episode, Steadicam operator Justin Yock, also took his class. And you'll find that Doug has a way of explaining things about the craft of filmmaking, how to get past the idea in your head as something, well, I don't know if I can do it into, yeah, you can do it, let's figure out a way to make it work. So definitely sit down and take some notes on this particular podcast because you're going to get film school in an hour with him. And of course, before we start, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast by hitting subscribe on whatever player you're listening to, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and of course, Anchor.fm. All right, here we go. Doug Campbell. Okay, here we go. So now we're actually really going to start again for real, I hope. So Doug Campbell. Hi. So um, um, tell me what's really interesting about you. <laughs> as we redo, every, as we redo everything. Um, so, Doug Campbell, you are a director here at the Academy of Art University. and Directing teacher. Directing, there you go. One more time. Yeah. That's always fun to start off like with my foot yeah, completely okay. down my throat. Um, so, prolific director and writer. And you have given a lot of students here their start. Um, tell me how that started. What was the, the, the reason behind being such a nice guy in film, which okay. is not required? <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you for uh, doing this interview. Uh, okay, so what happened was, um, long story, and I'll make it longer. I was teaching in Japan, and I was going crazy. And I said to myself, self, I got to do this in, in America, in English. I want to teach in America. So I started sending out my resume, or applying, excuse me, applying to, to film schools to get my MFA degree, which I don't have. And all of, you know, excuse me, I had to get an MFA degree in order to teach. So I enrolled in the Academy of Art online program back in 2008. And I started taking classes as an online student. And then my directing buddy called me up and said, or producing buddy called me up and said, hey, you want to start making these movies again that we did back in the 90s? I said, sure, let's do it. You know. Uh, the technology is different. We can start doing that. So I started directing again. So I figured, okay, I'll call up Academy of Art and see if any directing students want to come down and see the process. So I called up Academy of Art, and uh, Michael Helmy uh, answered the phone. He's no longer with us, but he answered the phone. He said, oh, yeah, let me put you on, on, on hold. Uh, I'm going to put you on with Diane Baker. He puts me on hold, and I go, wait a minute, Diane Baker, Diane Baker. I Google Diane Baker, and I go, Oh my God! That oh my God! I know who she is. Yeah, she's been she's, she's been, been in forever. every she's acted with every. Oh my God! All so the way back she, to Hitchcock. Yeah, she gets on the phone. She goes, "Who are you and what do you want?" <laughs> 
And I said, well, start. I said, well, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'd like to offer the, I'm, I'm making a, a feature film and I'd like to uh, offer students uh, the chance to come and visit. She said, hmm, okay, well you and I need to go to lunch. So we went to lunch and within 20 minutes of talking to her and, and explaining my life and what I've been doing and how many years I've been teaching in Tokyo, she said, would you like to come and teach at Academy of Art? And I got all verklempt, and my eyes got watery, and a lump in my throat, and I said, I would love to teach in America, and I would love to do that. So I started teaching here in 2010, and then along the way, uh, I kept, kept getting busier and busier as a, as a director and as a, a screenwriter, and so since that time, I've directed 27 features, and 12 of them I wrote or co-wrote, and on those 27 features, about 325, I think, AAU students, I've actually lost count, have come to the set in Los Angeles via Southwest Airlines or Megabus or however they get there, drive themselves, yeah. and visited and seen the process. And they sit with me at, uh, at the monitor and I explain the process that I go through as a director and I explain what the camera people do and what, what the art, art department people do. And then, of course, they're mostly fascinated with what the ADs do, those guys with the radios and the headsets. They're like, oh, oh, oh when, I mean, Justin and I both were, we had taken your class separately and, and Justin said, you got to take this class. I'm like, okay, I don't want to take a directing class. I, I, I already direct. And then I took your class. And from day one, I was like, yeah, I really don't know anything. I, I, nah, I've been really making this up as I go along. And then when we separately had gone down to your set visit day, it was like, I mean, eye-opening. I mean, oh, in one day was like, you know, film school in a day. I mean, oh, it was fabulous. Yeah, good. I think one thing that blew me away was just how fast your brain changes gears of how you were, you know, running a set of like 40-ish people and you would get the scene ready and all ready to go and then you'd be like, look over to me and I'm like, I'm just watching and you're like, oh yeah, come here, come here. So we want to, like your DP is always going to want to do like prime lenses, but like that takes a long time. So like, do you zoom lens? And I'm like, why are you talking to me? You're like running an entire set and then you just go straight back into it and run it. Yeah, it really, it blew oh, me away. We worked on a couple projects together and we were, we kind of looked at each other like, so how would Doug do this turn? Oh, yeah. Because we've got 20 minutes to do it. Oh, God. And yeah. the, we stole every trick we saw from you. Like, turn around. Don't move the, the, the camera. Just move that background piece. Flip it around and go. Say your lines. Go. Next. Let's go. And yeah. shooting long and shooting on the... And we'll get to all those tricks because I yeah. want to talk about some of that stuff. Which, which are compromises, but they're, they're like, oh, gosh, we're running out of time compromise. We've got to get it done. But I think the so, thing yeah. that like, you emphasized to me was how much like the things that you think are really important when you have this like precious thing on paper, and then once you get it all the way through post-production, you're not going to notice most of those things. And it's, it's paying, paying more attention to the things that matter and realizing what you can compromise on to yeah. save time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And sometimes you make the, you make the comp and you know, thank you for those compliments, but sometimes, honestly, you make the compromise and you regret it. And you go, oh, God, if I'd have just fought harder and stuck around and gotten that shot, eh. But you deal with it. You know, so, so it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. It, and I don't want to be the teacher that teaches students how to do it the cheap, down and dirty, low budget TV movie way. But I want them to know that that is an option. Well, and that, I yeah. think that's the thing that I, I was really impressed with what you did in the movies that you're doing because you know, I'm 42, so there's, there's people who, in film school, you want to make this great epic. I have this amazing story right. about my cat and whatever, and it's, it's, it's going to grow into this you know, meaning and symbolism. And, and then, you know, as you get older, it's like, well, I want to work. I want my work to be seen. Even if it's not seen by a million people, I want it not to live on a hard drive somewhere. Somebody somewhere needs to see that I actually have done what I claim to do. And making movies that are being seen is a tremendous achievement.
And I'm going to throw that okay, on you and go, okay, thank you, you have for to saying do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I have, uh, I, I kind of have come to the small realization that there's no there there. You know, there's no, there's no beautiful two golden doors that open up and, and you go, right, welcome to the film business. And, you know, oh, you've got your degree. Come on in. You know, it isn't like that. You, 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 you struggle to find what it is that you're going to do when you graduate. Like, okay, I wanted to, I, personally, I wanted to do the writer-director thing. I was just dogged and determined to do that. So that became the overall writing obsession. And so it wasn't just smack, boom, automatically, I'm making films. You know, there's a lot of ups and there's a lot of downs. I was, you know, when I first got out of uh, uh, Cal Arts way back in the day, I was literally bussing tables at a, at a restaurant when I was negotiating my first deal for a feature film. And I would leave these negotiations where we were talking about how to move a million dollars on a feature film back in 1986. You know, and then I'd say, hey, guys, I got to get to, I got to go to, I got to go to thing, I got to think. I got to go to the rental house right, real quick and, and check I'd things out. I'd get in out. my pickup truck, I'd drive across town, I'd put on my bow tie and my, my apron, and I'd go bust tables, you know. And so I, up and down and up and down. And, and I was very, very fortunate. I was 24 years old and found myself on a, on a film set in Stockton, California. Uh, with Aeroflex cameras and trucks and a crew and a million-dollar budget and a 30-day schedule directing my first feature film. I was oh enormously, gosh. enormously fortunate to have put together a screenplay that was a small thriller. No surprise that I'm still doing small thrillers. A small thriller that was bite-sizable with not too many moving parts, hint, hint. If I'd have said, I want to do Midway with battleships and explosions, they'd go, you're not ready for that. But I said seven characters, three locations, uh, kind of a, a body heat, double indemnity type of film noir thriller. Beginning, middle, and an end. Beginning, middle, and end, yeah, okay. And so we did that, and we also put together a trailer. We shot it on 16 back in the day. Today they call them proof of concepts, but back then we called them trailers. And so just like the Coen brothers had done with Blood Simple, we did that. We being my partner, Scott Mulvaney and I. And we went and did a, uh, um, a feature film. We got lucky, and, and people raised the money for that. So there I was you know, at that young age with that chance. And I literally made the best film I possibly could make. However, it was well-directed, well-cast, well-lit. We got done early, blah, blah, blah. Everything was great. There was just one small, tiny problem, the screenplay. The screenplay was boring. And the film, guess what, was boring. So I woke up 20 minutes after, or 20, uh, 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 Excuse me. I woke three. I woke up. I'm trying to get the story correct. I woke up. You got to edit this. Part. Yeah. I woke no. up. I woke up three months after um, delivering this picture and went. I can cut out 20 minutes and nobody would ever miss it. Oh no. So I went back in the editing room and I cut out 20 minutes and added music. Really? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm going to interrupt right here because your ears are probably bleeding. Yes, that is a real fire drill. I didn't say it at the beginning, but yes, this is what happens when you film on a live set. Crazy things happen. So remember, this is important because it's all going to come back at the end when Doug gives you a little bit more advice. And of course, as always, because it's a podcast, I'm going to give you a quick little ad to let you know that if you are looking for the right school to get these in-demand skills in the creative industries, then you are invited to our upcoming online interactive open house where you can learn about 40 plus art and design programs, admissions, financial aid, campus life, and more. And our admissions team will also be available via online chat throughout the event to answer whatever questions you may have. So please RSVP today at academyart.edu slash podcast. All right, 
back to Doug Campbell. You cannot go into production with a screenplay that's weak. So I put myself back into screenwriting, self-imposed screenwriting school. And even though I did have some fantastic teachers at CalArts, Sandy McKendrick and Gil Dennis and people like that, I still needed to learn more about screenwriting after I had begun my directing career. So I started reading everything I could on screenwriting and reading other scripts and writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. So honestly, and I'm not, maybe I'm bragging, but I can honestly tell you that when I'm hired to deliver a screenplay that, that will work as entertainment, that will work as you know, dramatic, narrative, conflict-driven, conflict-in-every-scene uh, fiction, I do that. And, and my, my directing success is walking hand-in-hand hand with the fact that I can write. I would not be directing if I couldn't write. Every time I get a directing job or I get an arrangement with an executive producer who trusts me, it's usually, I'll write that script I'll rewrite the script that you guys want to make because it ain't working right now, and I'll rewrite it, but I'm directing it. And they go, okay. So it's the writing that gets me there. And that's, and that's the best leverage uh, you can have is to, is to be able to write and also be able to direct. About half of the films that I've done have been, hey, we have the screenplay, and, and we want you to direct it. So I get, the, I get those offers. Now, oftentimes, there's a little bit of polishing to be done, and sometimes there's a lot of polishing to be done that I don't take credit on, but there's a lot of, but no, it's half and half now. It's half and half now, but I'm trusted as a storyteller. I'm trusted as a writer and a crafter of the whole story. And if we get into a bind on set and I have to write a couple pages of dialogue or a couple lines of dialogue or change something or change a prop or whatever, or make that writing decision, we don't have to have a confab and have everybody's opinion, just the writer director just goes, oh wait, hey, give me a second guys, and we just do a quick, quick little rewrite and we, do, we shoot it. So that's an advantage. So I, I recommend to directing students, yeah, learn, learn where to put the camera and learn how to talk to actors and learn how to do all that wonderful stuff that directors do on a movie set. That's all good, but you better learn story. Story is where we make our, our, our money as directors. We are the chief storyteller on that show, whether you like it or not, especially in low budget. Right, because that seems so, you know, it's funny when you look at stuff that you're talking about your films being low budget, yeah. and we're even looking at TV, because a lot, you know, you're doing, would you say it's primarily TV movies? or Okay, what act? we do, yeah, you're right, that's great. It's great that you asked that. And what we do truly is this. We do independent films that work as feature films that will play uh, theatrically overseas okay. or they will play on television overseas. Now, nowadays, it's all TV. It's okay. TV overseas and TV domestically. But we make them as completely independently financed spec movies. However, we're smart enough, like <laughs> the guy on Saturday Night Live, who, I won't do that bit. <laughs> okay, but no, we're smart enough to know that that XYZ channels out there want a movie about such and such subject. For instance, we make the mother-daughter drama thrillers that get on uh, the Lifetime Movie Network in America or uh, TF1 in France or whatever channel in it's Italy. Women in Peril films. And because, how did you find that? Well, I didn't find it, it just kind of found me. But the thing is, who's making films for that demographic? You go to the movie theaters, it's for the 14-year-old boy. Right. You go to uh, uh, any other channel on cable and it's for the guys. Yeah, Who's absolutely. making movies for the ladies? 
Right, because they do watch television. They watch a lot of TV, and they like these movies. And I get one, I get one or two responses with the films that I make that end up on the Lifetime Movie Network. Oh, God, I would never watch those films. How, how can you even think of doing that? And then I also meet the woman at, the, at Supercuts with tears in her eyes and says, I love that film that you did. I just loved that. You know, so it's a demographic that isn't spoken to. Sure. How did I land there? Uh, I want to pay my bills. That's A. And then B, um, uh, producers that I've uh, uh, got recommended to were making films for this venue way back in the early 90s. And I kind of got in with these folks, and they trusted me uh, to, do these, to do these stories and to do these movies uh, because, you know, we would shoot them in three weeks, and can you write it and direct it fast? And the other thing, too, that keeps me working as a director is the ability to work quickly on set, quickly and efficiently, and be well-organized, and I'm not insane, and I'm, I don't drink or smoke or anything like that. And I show up ready to go, and I'm all prepared, and, you know, they like that. I'm a good kid when it comes to being a director. I'm not a madman who pushes them over budget and over schedule. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into the deep into the tricks, but I want to talk a little bit about your movies first because I remember, you know, part of the experience that the Doug Campbell AAU experience is <laughs> if, if you if you're a good student, you get invited down to be one of on on set for the day. Even when you're a bad one. Um, yeah. I, well, thank you. I, was, you know, I, I only showed up half the time, um, but you know, to go down and see you direct and see how this how the the show runs, uh, and when I was there, I I you had pointed out pointed them out to the, the producers of the film. And so at some point I kind of skulked around and tried to overhear as much as possible and, and, and politely corner one of them by craft services. Like, so how, what's the reason behind the film and, and how you're making the film? And, and one of the producers explained to me that she really wanted to tell stories about women in peril getting out of that peril because nobody tells that story to them. It was like her idea of a... We want to tell women what to look out for. And I'm a woman, and I've had bad run-ins, and I want to make sure people know this story. Right. And I was like, okay, yeah. that, that, that's believable. I think you were talking to Marianne. Possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and she was really, I mean, really excited about it. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's, like you said, that's, yeah. that's not something we're thinking. It was like, well, I want to make right. a Star Wars movie, or I want to make that's this. Right. It's like, well, no, I want to tell a simple story that somebody sure. walks away with sure. a plan. Yeah, that's true. And also just to empower women and girls to feel, uh, you know, as if they can do whatever the guys do and, and to put their issues on screen as best as possible, what they're going through. And also, you know, admittedly, there is the thriller, uh, bizarre element, you know, of, uh, you know. Stocked by my doctor one. Stocked by my doctor two. Stocked by my doctor three. My favorite, uh, stocked at 17, betrayed at 17, and accused at 17. I know. Which I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. These movies yeah. are really fun. And the, the names you look at things like, these are, I know what this movie's going to be, but it's enjoyable. Well, here's the bizarre thing, is we don't have big, story, we don't have big stars in these movies at all. If, if at best we'll have a television actor who was on a TV show, and, and you might know who he or she is. And those are the biggest stars that we have. So how do you sell the movie? The executive producer, if we, if we called... Like, for instance, we had a movie called High School Crush. And that was about a high school teacher who envisions herself as if she's back in school. And she develops a crush on one of her students. It's actually a pretty interesting film. That's on Netflix now. Yeah, yes, I remember that's seeing right. that. Yeah. That's right. Retitled as Dirty Teacher. <laughs> of course. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and everybody just puts the palm to the forehead and goes, oh, my God, seriously? You're going to call it that? 
and the executive producer feels that he needs to call it that in order to get anybody to watch it anywhere. But if you strip away that title and just look at the movie, you go, oh, this is, this is just a clever thriller or a clever drama about such and such story. Okay, great, that's fine. But they put on these really, really terrible titles. Now, that's the double-edged sword. I get to work a lot, but the stink of these titles is on my IMDb. So a lot of people won't even watch the movies that I make. They'll just go, oh. And they'll discount the movies that I make and go, those are those movies. I don't spend time watching those movies. And that's been a detriment to my life, frankly. Really? Oh, sure. Do you have oh, any sure. say in that? Or does all of that happen? I get zero say in that. Pants. I get zero say. I can complain. I can come up with story ideas, or, or excuse me, title ideas. And I can say, why don't we call it this? Or why don't we call it that? At the end of the day, the guy who pays for the movie has to know he can get the movie sold. So that's, that's the most important thing. So, so why don't we talk about that, that you, you know, we're, 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 we're talking about making a movie for, can you tell us the budgets on some of these? Or a round figure, less than, less than $200,000, more than $200,000? We have done them at that budget. We've done them for more than that. And I can't talk about it uh, publicly about our budgets. I would be sued. But these sued. are sub-million dollar films. Oh, sub-sub-million dollar okay. films. I'm okay. not, yeah, that's right. You know, that, that price point's been around for a very long time. Yeah, and it's even getting worse. It's even getting lower and it's getting worse. Yeah, we, we just got, got $150,000 basically slashed from our overall operating budget for these movies. So go ahead and make that low-budget movie again with all the production value that you get, and can you do it for literally 150 grand less? Well, when we, when we started doing them, I just looked at this ironically. Back in 2008, we were doing them 16 days, 15 days. We leveled off at 13 days, and so most of them have been 13 days. Now, uh, in a couple weeks, I will be directing two movies back-to-back, -back, and it's 12 days each. And that is the shortest schedule I've ever been on. And is that a, got a dark day in there, or is it just 12 straight? No, it's 12 straight, then like two days off, and then I come up here to teach, and then we, we keep going again. So yeah, it's 12 and 12. Okay. Yeah. No, we have, we, we have, you know, we shoot five-day weeks. Easy five-day yeah, weeks. But, you know, it's easy, well, now we are, the other good thing is, you know, we're using two cameras, so that helps just knock down that extra setup, and so, you know, it, it's a, there's a lot of work to be done. Honestly, I hope I can do it as well as we did before. There will be compromise, just less time. And here's the other thing, too, and hopefully students understand this. There's no, I don't believe that there's any merit in saying, oh, I could do that, and, and I can do that feature film in four days, or I can do that feature film in ten. There's, I mean, when you become a great director, do you see Martin Scorsese saying, hey, I'm Martin Scorsese, I can get that film done in four hours? No, he wants four months. You know what I mean? The more, you know what I'm saying? It, there's no merit in going faster. The only reason I have to go faster and I have to do these things uh, at, this, at this rate is that's what our budgets are at this level, and this seems to be the work that I'm getting. Would I like to get other work where we have more time and more money? Hell yeah, who wouldn't? Was that something that you were curious about or? You know what's funny is I don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking of, oh gosh, I can't wait to sell Doritos. I just <laughs> don't enough. care. Uh, I mean, I should because those commercial directors used to get paid a fortune. I think some of them still do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, I'm, I'm mostly, I, I thought I would be an A-list feature film uh, director that would do the big shows like everybody who does out of film school. But I realized that I'm not a special effects guy. I'm not an action film guy, even though I can choreograph a fight scene just fine. But flipping cars and blowing stuff up, and, and it's just not my thing. I like thrillers. I like psychological thrillers. I like stories about people. 
And I love, I love working with women about women's stories. I was raised by women, so obviously this speaks to me. And it wasn't something I thought I would do. So you said, how did Lifetime movies find me? How did I find them? Well, it kind of just, luck, I luckily started doing these movies and realized, oh, I'm a good fit here. Because I like working with small crews. I like working with my friends rather than a corporate mentality. I like the fact that I can write a script in April, direct it by August, post it by November, and seeing it on TV by the next April. I like the fact that I can get a movie seen and out there and done rather than talk about it for five years, as most people do. So this is a good fit for me. It may not be a great fit for everybody. I don't make a lot of money at it. I have you know, two and a half teaching jobs in order to afford my directing and writing habit. I mean, that's just the way it is, you know, right. so how, how that goes. But something else you kind of mentioned before we started talking was th this business thing. I've come to the conclusion, and I could be wrong, but this is my theory, that there, there's, there's two types of movies that get made in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Most movies are, hey, I've got this idea to do a movie about blank idea. And let's see if we can package that and get big name director and big name actor and go get the money and get the, you know, the, the, the uh, completion bond to go do it. And we can, we can go into production on this thing and we need you know, five to $10 million to do it or $4 million, whatever the, the goal is, or $80 million, whatever it is. And these are big scores. You know, anything over a million dollars these days is a bigger budget film. Right. It is. And those are most people's uh, that's the way most of these uh, uh, producers practice. I don't work in that game. I'm basically an order filler. Our boss says, I want to make a movie about blank subject. Yeah, he goes, like, like for instance, we're in, we're in post on a film called Deadly Flight. Okay. And we were, we were at lunch, and we were talking, and uh, the producer said, well, uh, uh, what, about, what about a location destination type films? And the producer uh, said, well, I've got, my brother-in-law's got an airplane. Oh, why not a movie about a crazy flight instructor? Okay, so that was a year ago, and now we're done wow. with this movie. So, yeah, that was a year ago last spring, and we wrote it in the summer, and we shot it in the fall, and now we're finishing it now. So, so that, you know, that's how it came about. Oh, let's make a movie about a crazy flight instructor. Is that how most of them come to yes. you? Okay. Yeah, you have a very basic prompt, sure, and then you flesh that out. Or, or lately it's been, and this is lucky for me, is come up with some ideas, Doug, about, uh, um, uh, like, what did he say, domestic help gone wrong. Okay, so, so, okay, correct. The maid, the caregiver, the milkman, whatever. And, you, and I pitched him a bunch, and he picked um, one that I came up with my niece, because uh, she's an interior designer, uh, Deadly Decorator. So we're going in for Deadly Decorator. I was just on the phone with the producer right now for that. Deadly Decorator. I, mean, and then, I think you're speaking to a real need. This is a real problem. <laughs> that's yeah. right. That's There's right. Lot, but no, and we're also re, doing Trapped by My Caregiver. Re, re, yeah. Remodeling a part of our house, you know, I can see where all of the murder wants to happen when right. you're dealing with this. Absolutely. There's a lot of anxiety a lot letting of somebody, anxiety. you know, that you don't know into your home. Yeah, yeah you, you, murder right. is at the top of your mind right. at that point. So, so, so I've, been, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of these very Are you just silly paranoid about everything? Everybody at this no, point has writing all these. I've been doing a lot of the silly uh, uh, thrillers that are fun. We all know there's a bit of a sense of humor going on with them. And then every once in a while, uh, the, a serious drama comes around about a bizarre subject. Like, for instance, we did this movie, which has a terrible title, called Double Mommy. And it's, about a, it's on TV. You can see it now. And it's about a girl. I didn't write it, but it's about a girl who is impregnated with twins, and one twin is the 
child of one father while the other part of the twin relationship is the father of another one. And that's actually a thing that can happen. And so, and we explored that. The writer explored that and we made a movie about that. And that's a, just a straight ahead drama about what would happen if that were to happen. And that was fun to do. That wasn't any thriller element, really. I mean, that was, the guy goes nuts at the end. But the most of it was just a drama about what people go through. So every once in a while, we do just a straight-ahead drama. But most of these are thrillers, and they're kind of silly. How, how are you writing these things so that you can have 12, 14-day turnaround uh, on your I, production? If I speak upon that, then you'll know all our little sure. secrets now, won't you? You'll know exactly where all the bones are buried. All right, what you basically do is you, you just... Your guys, you guys are filmmakers. You know what it is to make a movie. You guys you know, make movies. Okay. Uh, what can you do inexpensively? Well, can you do an action movie inexpensively and do it well? Well, no. Because any action movie that you make will be compared to Iron Man. And on a low budget, okay. you just can't compete. Can you do a... Um, uh, animation f film or any kind of any kind of uh, a period piece on a low budget and 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 do what the guy the Merchant Ivory guys would do or do you know these fantastic period pieces no you're just going to get cream the idea of your wardrobe budget is your entire budget of your film so what can you do you can do contemporary you can rent homes there's this website out there called Gigster and up here in San Francisco there's Peer Space and Peer Space is in LA as well and you can rent homes now it's very easy to rent homes you can get a crew that can shoot well on location a small crew so it's not a huge crew are there any stunts sure there's a quote unquote stunt it's called you know somebody gets pushed toward the stairs you cut to the other character watching and you hear the thump 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 and then the next thing you know the person's on the floor you don't do the stunt in the story, there's the stunt, quote unquote, the stunt, but you don't really do the stunt on set. You know, and you come up with every low budget trick in order to pull off uh, the thing. We just did this movie, Deadly Flight. Oh boy, we went out there with the RC controlled model airplanes. So that's the thing is that you kind of, you kind of work backward. You go, what can you pull off? So then write to that. So I'm able to write knowing what I can, knowing what we can make on our budget and knowing what I can direct with the elements that I've got. Well, I mean, that that's, makes, that's important to know. I mean, that makes sense because you're talking about going down the stairs and, and somebody falling down the stairs is not a cinematic scene that your whole movie should rely upon. No. It's, it's just short. She's falling down the stairs. That's why she's in the hospital. Correct. So we need to get Correct. out of it and so everybody understands. And the good news is our audience, which is this, uh, you know, moms and daughters at home watching cable, they don't care. I never heard a mom or a daughter say, oh, my God, did you see the way that guy's head exploded? <laughs> did you see the way that, that car flipped? Right. Wow, that was so cool when it went up in the air. They don't care about that. They care about the story. So it's story, story, and story. And so we cut around those things. And we, we, we might have certain elements that are expensive in our movies, but we don't cut around, we don't, we cut around them or, or, or write them out of the movie or whatever we do. So, so it's a matter of writing these things with the scope of the production in hand, in mind of what you're going to do, and not be dreaming uh, of what you would like to do uh, you know, as a writer and hoping someone will go fill that bill. You kind of have to know like, what you can actually pull off. I mean, I think for me, like being asked to do a movie about flying and in airplanes on such a tight budget, on such a tight schedule, would scare the crap out of me. Yeah, me I'm too. just thinking about like yeah. 
I mean, how much time did you actually here? film up in the air? Or I, I'm, th yeah. I'm like picturing you doing like poor man's process shots. We did. Uh, we did. With, we did everything. Airplane? Yeah. yeah. We did poor man's process in the airplane. We also did. Uh, uh, you know, we did miniatures. We we did fly a real airplane. Put a GoPro on the side of the airplane. We got one wonderful shot um, with a GoPro. Too bad we didn't get more. Uh, and I knew that we that flying time, being in the air with a pilot and a plane, would be the, our most expensive thing. So I wrote, I I planned it. This wasn't anything in the script. Excuse me. I planned it that any time our characters were in the in this airplane, they would be wearing the same jacket. So I'm not kidding you. We literally took, you know, there's four people that you can put in the airplane in a Cessna. Me, the director of photography, Academy of Art graduate David Dolnick, pilot, and the actor. So David Dolnick sat in the back seat, and I sat in the back seat with the whole script on my lap. And the actress or actor had the whole script on their lap, pretending they were flying. And we went through the whole movie. We flew it. We took her up in the air, flew around a little bit. I went through all the dialogue for the whole movie. Then we landed. Then we got the male actor, the actor, excuse me, the male actor, duh, the actor in the other seat and switched seats and went up and flew with him. And we did the whole movie. And the actor would act opposite. He would, the actor would look at the pilot's ear and perform off the pilot's ear for the, for the eye line. And so we got the whole movie done in three flights for three characters. So we have to do that kind of a thing. Yeah, you have to plan it like that. And it was, it was literally saying to wardrobe department, they're wearing the same clothes. Because if we had to change clothes each time, we'd still oh, be forget shooting. Forget it, forget it. We'd yeah. still be shooting. That reminds me of this thing that you told me in class one day, and it had a profound effect on me. One thing that you were always stressing, which I remember all the time, is always shoot your master all the way through all the time. Because like, you get in there, and especially as somebody with kind of like a cinematographer mindset, you're like, oh, yeah, I want to set the camera up here. I'm going to shoot through the glass, and then like focus. And you're like, so you just spent 20 minutes shooting this one shot. And uh, let's say the cops show up to your location, or your yeah. generators go out, and all you've got is this one shot of two lines of this entire scene. Right. You're like, set up the camera wide, let all the actors do it, because it also gives you a chance to rehearse. Right, that's right. And then if everything goes right. you know, you got sideways, you've got the master, and you've at least got this story to get you through to the next scene. Now the cops shouldn't show up, you should have a permit. But once yes. in a while, <laughs> once in a while they do, and you have to go, oh gosh. Yeah, that actually, I did get shut down once. How dare you? I'm making a movie, <laughs> I know. officer. Don't you guys understand? Yeah, act of God or fire drill or whatever. We got to cut you. Yeah, you get your master. Yeah, always that. get your master. Always get your clean entrances and exits. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, those, those are things that, I mean, let, let's talk about some of those, some more of those tricks because they're, I mean, again, when I went down there and when Justin went down there, you know, both of us came back just like, oh, and he did this and he did this. And I, I got this note and, and I, I'm trying to draw the stuff because I can't take pictures. And I mean, you, you had done something where you were filming uh, in a police, you know, the set was a police station. Right. And so lighting guys had come in, the gaffer had come in, place cameras, um, set design had done everything. Everything's built and ready to go. And then you walk in and you see that they've set the camera in the center of the scene. And you've got what turned out to be what seemed like six pages of dialogue uh -huh. in a very short time. You're like, no, 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 we're going to set this up on the far edge of the scene, film all of our dialogue from here, and then turn around and go to the other extreme end of the scene. And then you had 10 extras in cop uniforms yeah. walking around back and forth in front of the camera so that everything looked massive. And I went and I looked and found the movie and watched the scene for, the, for I was there. I'm going, that little room looked huge. Right. 
And I mean, what are some of the what are some of those other tricks that I poorly explained? No, you, you explained that quite well. And and oftentimes the sets look a lot bigger. Well, you know, you put a, a 18 millimeter or a 14 millimeter lens on a camera, and your little tiny uh, apartment looks yeah. looks very big. It's that kind of thing where you you get the the depth, the longest axis, where you can see through to the horizon, and you know. The other thing too that will, will I've been doing lately. Of, and I hope I didn't steal your trick. No, no, hope no. I didn't, no, 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 no. Everybody your, your does cool that. Trick. Everybody does it. But you know the thing that that uh, I've been doing lately, which script supervisors hate, is I basically go, no one's watching those extras. We think we are, but no one's really watching those extras. Now, if the if there's an extra, a background player who's got a really loud shirt or a really loud hairstyle, you're going to remember that person there because it's going to drive your attention. But if you just switch a few clothes on them, and you put them in the background again and recycle them like good first ADs will do. You can get five, five to 10 extras on your set and make it look like you have the whole place packed with 50 people. If you shoot it well and you have a long lens and you just recycle people. And don't, I don't care about extras matching their action. I don't mind, I want the busyness. And script supervisors are freaking out on me. They're like, but he was over there in the last shot. And he cut. I go, don't, no one's gonna notice. You cut it together and nobody notices. People don't notice. People really don't notice. At least I don't hear about it. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, that's, you have to do that. That's low budget. Yeah, and, and that's what low it just is. made more sense because yeah. you know, in, by the time you've edited it, and your edits every one to three seconds at the most, it seems like now yeah. that you're you're bouncing around so much, and you're always going to that close up of the emotion of the actor, the actress. That by the time you get there, it's 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 moving colors. It's well, and I think that's also important because you have so many roles to manage on a film set that knowing what you actually need to spend brain space on frees you up to do all the other stuff. You know, I, th I think something that, that I run into and a lot of early filmmakers run into is you have this perception of the world of like how it needs to be in a real life situation and that's not actually what it needs to be to look real on camera. Correct. And so two dimensional engineering thing. for that end result yeah. and knowing actually what people are going to be focusing on right. so that you are not worried about getting 20 extras and you can do it with five, right. frees you up to right. do a better job on right. getting your principal actor to give that more emotive performance. Right. And right. only, you're right, and it's geography, as I always say, is in the audience's mind. We create the geography uh, through the two-dimensional space of what is actually important. And, and you know, uh, yes, it's a little bit of, it's minor movie magic that we do in order to pull off these things. And you're right, it is a matter of just doing these cheats that look reasonable enough for a two-dimensional edit, and know, and having gone through, having edited is so vital. So you know, oh, I can cut that together, and you, no one will know. But if you haven't edited, and some people on set haven't edited, that I, you work with professionally, they just never get into the editing room because that's not their job. They don't know that side of it. Actually, I was going to ask you that. How involved are you in your post-production process? Okay, that's a great question. Uh, uh, depending on the producer, uh, some producers are more uh, TV producers, where they'll say. Thanks so much for your, your work on set. Uh, you're fired. Thanks. No, you're, but we don't need you anymore. Goodbye. And they'll take yeah. the film, and then you'll see it when it's on TV. And then some producers are like, Doug, you need to supervise the picture edit. You need to supervise the, the mix. You need to supervise the VFX. You need to supervise the music. And I'm very, very much involved. Now, lately, that's been the case, and I love it. I'd rather work a lot more hours and a lot harder uh, uh, and longer to be a part of that process. Now, when it comes to editing, picture editing, here's the trick. Don't tell anybody this, because this is a really secret. It's a really big secret. Hire a great editor. Get, a, get an editor who's better at editing than you are at directing. 
and he or she were, were, is going to edit that film, and I'll drop some names here. Boris Zubov, who teaches at our school, he's one of the best editors I've worked with. He cut a feature for me along with Wes Sneeringer, who was an Academy of Art graduate and also an employee here, and did a fantastic job on a film called My Daughter's Ransom, which is airing on television now, and you can watch it anytime you want to. Um, I'll plug them. And, and you, you basically get great, great editors, and you trust them, and they do, the, they, they do their their pass, and the last couple films that I've been a part of, the editor has delivered their first edit, and we've given them a general note like, okay, do another pass and just tighten it up. Just, just pull out gaps, pull out air, and they've done that second pass, and they've pulled out air. And then I've sat down for five to six days, and after that five or six days, our picture's locked. Yeah, because if the story makes sense, and the editor has edited it well, and it works, I go, Okay, the story's getting told. It's not exactly how I saw it to be edited, but it's edited very, very well, probably sometimes and oftentimes better than I could have ever imagined it being edited, and it's fine. You can nitpick and you can say, well, I thought that it would be blah, 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 and you can try to get it back to that original vision that you had. Or you can go, wait a second, is the story getting told? Is it broken? No, it's not broken. The scene's fine. I'll only go into do an edit on a scene after an editor has done his best work on it, his or her best work on it, when I feel as if, nope, we're not telling the story. We're missing a story point. Then I'll get in there and mess around with it. But other than that, I trust these guys to do their job well. And that's the trick. You, know? I don't, you don't hire actors who can't act. You don't hire a DP who can't shoot. Why would you hire an editor where you go in there and tell them how to redo everything? So I try to you know, get great editors, trust them with the material. And you know, that's, that's, how, that's how I work. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I think it's, it's always been useful to have people who are outside of the production phase yes. of it take a crack at it. There's this, forget who said you mean, this You mean ha not have the editor on set? Right. Absolutely. Because then they don't know all the backstory That's right. around this thing. Because the yeah. shot that was very precious to you that actually doesn't work on the story. What, what was that quote of, don't let the difficulty that it takes to get the shot um, affect the actual importance of the shot. That's right. Like just because you know it took That's three right. days to set this one or up doesn't mean that it actually tells a story. Right? That's right? And so like if I were cutting it, I'd be like, well this is definitely getting in there. And it totally gums up the works. Yeah. And you have somebody objective in there to That's be right. like, oh yeah, no, this makes no sense. Yes. This is how I actually need to tell a story so I can understand. Alex to his credit on, on Deadly Flight, Alexander Van Hesch, who's a Adam Vark graduate who just uh, edited um, Deadly Flight, which we're in post production on right now, he heard me saying I had no script supervisor done a couple films without a script supervisor. It's very, very challenging. But he'll hear me saying, okay, that's good, good. Let, we, got, we got an airplane moving in the background. Good. I hope, I, hope, I hope we use that. So he heard me saying that on the audio. So he would cut to a, a scene of dialogue where an airplane would be taxing along the runway behind one of our characters in the background. Completely screw up the audio. You know, completely screw up the audio. But he knew that we're making a movie about airplanes. So he did a director thing by saying, I'll use this shot even though the audio's bad and we've got to ADR it, replace the, replace the dialogue, because we want the airplanes in the movie. That's the production value of the movie. So, so a movie without airplanes is not a movie about airplanes. It's like a samurai movie with no swords. Exactly. So, exactly. So, so he made, so, sometimes the editors, they're on your side and helping you out. Sometimes the notes come down, there's not enough camera movement in your films, Doug. I'm like, God dang it. I mean, I got you a movie in 13 days. You know, you, now you want massive uh, uh, Steadicam moves? It's like, we don't have time for Steadicam moves. So it's like, okay, how can we get the movement in the film? I mean, how do you do that? Well, in other words, if an editor is cutting out a fantastic dolly move or, or a fantastic camera move in order to just get to the next story point, um, sometimes I'll say, I understand why you did that, but 
the, the directive from on high has been, there's not enough movement in your movie. And I need that in order to have a expensive looking film, quote unquote. That, that, that's interesting you talk about that, because the one and only feature film I DP'd when I learned I was not a feature film DP, we, at the end of it, when it was fully edited, uh, my, myself, uh, one of the producers, and the first AD sat down and calculated how many days of shooting we cut out when we, did, when we looked at the final piece. And we had lost an entire week's worth of shooting on the editing, editing room floor because we just didn't, nobody made decisions and everybody thought that was important. And we looked and we could have just skipped all this and the writer and the director wanted it in and we're like, the entire four actors gone, a whole week of shooting, gone. Like, wow, that could have paid for everybody in this room, a better camera, <laughs> a lot of things. Sure. So how, how do you, when you look at a script, what is your thinking, uh, aside from the creative side, um, when you're looking at a script, how are you going, here's where money goes, here's where it doesn't, here's where we need to work on tricks, and how, how do you break down a script for now a 12-day shoot? That's a great question. Uh, I have always subscribed to what my teacher, Alexander Sandy McKendrick, taught me back in the day, which was if you can cut it out without ruining what's left, then by all means you cut it out. Whether it be screenplay, whether it be performance on set when you're directing, blocking on set when you're directing, or in the editing room. So if you can get rid of it, it'll tighten the rest of it and, and the, the, the good elements will shine through more. So, so that's, the, that's the main thing, is you go through that screenplay and you go, is this moment necessary? Is this scene fat? Get rid of it. If you can, do you need it? Get rid of it, get rid of it. Get it down to as small a task as possible because you only have so much time to shoot it. So knowing what's fat and what's lean, what is not necessary to propel the story, to propel the characters, propel the plot in a, in a motion picture script is, is part of the craft. And in that writing process, is that a collaborative process between you and your producer, or is that mostly just you going through it over and it's over both. and over? It's both. It's both. The yeah. producer can make those notes if you don't see them, and I'll try to make them now. After doing a number of these, I'm able to spot most of them, and then sometimes people will point stuff out. Of course, you know, you write a script, you think it's all, all is perfect, you show it to your friend, and you go, oh, you're right, I don't need that scene, or, or that can be condensed, or whatever. Let's, you know, whatever you can get rid of. You know, I was directing my second feature film at age 25, and I sat at, the, at Photochem Labs with a bunch of executives in the back, and I had a yellow pad on my lap, and I was taking notes, and they, we would screen the film. It was a film called Zapped Again. And they would, we would screen the film, and, and they, the producers would go, okay, that moment, that can go. Okay, that moment, that can go. Okay, that line, we can get rid of that line. And I was just writing all these notes going, my God, they're destroying this film. No, they weren't destroying this film. They were tightening the film. They were improving the film by getting rid of, getting rid of, getting rid of and tightening, tightening, tightening. Now, you ask about scheduling that. That is an art form unto itself. We will basically write five or six to seven drafts of the script. We will do 14 drafts of the schedule. Because the schedule is, is, hate to say it, sometimes more important than the screenplay. Because if we can't get it shot on time, we're not gonna get the film made. Now, the screenplay is, of course, more important than anything else. But once the screenplay's there and it's locked, we will work on that schedule and massage it so we can get all of the parts there. And there's an art form to scheduling. 
you know, obviously you schedule it with, you know, locations in mind and then rooms in the house or location in mind and how you will move the crew, but you also have to schedule it with actors in mind, such as, oh, she'll be in the makeup chair for an hour and a half. Actress number two, she'll be in the makeup chair for an hour and a half. If you need both of them at the top of the day and you only have one makeup person, you just screwed yourself because you're going to be waiting for people to get out of the chair for three hours before you can roll. So why don't we just start with a scene with one of the guys that only needs 15 minutes in the chair. While we're shooting with him, she's in the chair one at a time. You know what I'm saying? So it's a build. And also you don't call in all the extras for scene one because they're not going to get there. And then you have to build this enormous thing. You know, you start small, build up. The middle of the day gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then toward the end of the day, you start doing scenes that, that have less elements to them so you can manage that. Scheduling is totally an art form, and the, and the first ADs of the world are, are much better at it than I am. That responsibility falls just on you. Ultimately, it's my responsibility. If, this, if the schedule is uh, approved and I say, yes, I, we can get that thing done, we can shoot it, no problem. If I don't get it done, it's my butt. So I am very closely embroiled with the first AD as we're doing that schedule to make sure that it can happen. And oftentimes, what we'll do is the, the uh, AD will have Movie Magic scheduling open on his computer, and I'll be next to him with the screenplay. And up comes a scheduling issue, and I'll go, okay, let's rewrite that scene to take place at this location so we can get that all shot in the same thing. Okay, hang on a second. And I'll rewrite it. We have to. You have to with low budget. So, so once you get your locations and then your, your, your schedule starts to take shape, then you look back at your screenplay and go, okay, can we move scenes around in the script, change you know, one, one or two lines of dialogue in order to make this thing work better for the schedule to get the days done? And if you can do it, you do it. Now, if it's like, nope, nope, we can't, we can't change that. It has to take place this way. Then we'll fight for it and do it. But if it can be changed in order to make the schedule work more efficiently, you do. One of the coolest days in your class was actually a scheduling exercise. It was mm -hmm. something that I had never thought about. You're like, OK, here's all of your day exterior scenes. Here's all your night exterior scenes. Yeah. This all, here, here are your four locations. And then you get everything arranged perfectly. And then you're like, OK, oh, uh, executive producer. Right, exactly. uh, we, we lost this location. We have to do it here. And so then you're sitting there with the script. And you're like, OK, well, I guess this doesn't have to happen here. Yeah. I guess I can move it. And it just blew my mind how much work. Right. How much Tetrising yes. goes in oh, yeah. to getting it to fit within that schedule. Right. It, it just blew my mind. And maybe never want that to have to be my job. Yeah. Actually. That's right. That's right. Okay, like for instance, let's say that, um, okay, this is a simple one. Like let's say there's a scene where uh, your, your characters are shooting baskets in the front yard. And they have a scene as they're shooting baskets in the front yard driveway where everyone's got a basketball hoop on their garage. Okay. Let's say you book a location and, and it's, it's the only location that you can afford. It's got the right look or whatever. And there's no basketball hoop. <laughs> okay. So you have to have the scene where they're shooting baskets and go, you know what? We're just going to make it a scene where they are bad version. They're playing cards. Okay. Great. Change the dialogue a little bit. What's really happening is so-and-so is confronting another person about such-and-such -such subject. It's not about the basketball playing. Right. So that's just the business. So changing the business in order to fit the location, that's an easy one. So you do that a lot. Well, well no, but that, that, you, you say that sounds so simple, but I, I, you know, I think anybody on their first, second, third yeah. film... You think the basketball is important. It, the, the ball represents yeah. their okay. feeling. Now, if, if the story is, and the guy's a basketball player, and it has to do with that, well, you, obviously you can't get rid of that, so you better get a basketball court, you know, et cetera. But so, 
if, if you can do it, you do it. Things like that to, to adjust your script to your schedule in order to make it work. But I think having being challenged by that makes you clarify what is actually the important Correct. thrust of that of that scene. That's right. That that, what's yeah. really important. Yeah. It's, it's not the basketball. It's the thing. Yeah. That they're talking about. So I only got it's not what questions. he's eating. It's what's eating him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we only got a couple of questions left because I know you're short on time because yeah. you still have to teach. Mm -hmm. um, Thank you for just, doing this. You're hiring students on mass. It seems like. Because of trust or because? Both. Okay, so for instance, uh, like I mentioned before, of the t and I'm reading from this, so sorry for me sounding like an idiot, but of the 27 features that I've done since starting here at, at Academy of Art, about 325-ish AAU students have come down and visited set. I've been able to cast 11 AAU actors in some of these films over time. So the reason I'm able to cast these actors is because I teach an acting for film course, and I, I love teaching this course. And I get to work with these actors week after week as they bring in scenes, as, and I get to see their range, and I get, direct them, get to direct them just like you would do it on a real set, and um, see how they operate and perform, and are they reliable. So I'm able to trust them, and I'm able to sell them to my executive producer, yeah, he or she can, uh, can do the role. And by the way, I don't know if it got zipped or not, but I'm in the process. Uh, she doesn't know it yet, but she's an Academy of Art actress. She goes here right now, and uh, she auditioned for the film that I'm, one of the two films that I'm about to do, and executive producers have okayed her. They like her, and so we are going to be booking uh, an Academy of Art actress for a lead role in one of these movies that I'm going to be shooting in a couple weeks. I mean, that's, just, that's fabulous. She's, but it's not anything that I did. She's got talent, and our teachers, our acting teachers, have helped her find her talent. She's got those chops. And she came out, and this is the third show that she's auditioned for me. So I'll audition a lot of actors here. They don't get the job, but they, they audition and they go through their process. And that's just not on-camera talent. You're, you know, a lot, you, your DP on your last couple of features Correct. was it? Uh... Correct. David Dolnick has, has, direct, has been the director of photography on four films, and David was one of the original uh, Academy of Art students here in the cinematography program. And I've also uh, hired uh, uh, people to be key production assistants, second unit directors, DIT, editor, location manager, second AC, key grip, gaffer, stand-in. These are not PA, paper towel, clean up the, clean up the mess people. This is, this is career. This is career building. You know, uh, uh, best boy electric, gaffer, yes, craft service, uh, assistant coordinator, three editors, uh, production designers, line producers. People from AAU have filled all of these jobs over time. I'll take credit for 90% of them, and then the other 10% has been the, the AAU mafia referring people. Like, for instance, I was directing a movie, and I was walking down the hallway, and I was really busy, and I was racing to it, and I bumped into one of my students, Brianna Del Giorno, and I said, Brianna, what are you doing here? She goes, I'm the second AC. What are you doing here? I go, I'm the writer-director. And she goes, oh, I didn't know you were on this show. And I went, well, we're working it's on it together. It's my show. <laughs> you know, she was, she was referred by somebody else. And she just showed up. And I went, oh, there's one of my former students. So I think one of the big things that people coming out of film school that start directing don't know a lot about, and it ends up becoming like a big part of the job, is kind of the politics of being on set, of you're always doing these bargains uh, with your producer and your and people in charge of budget of, uh, I guess, like, what do you choose? You've been doing this for a while. What are the things that you choose to fight for, and what are the things that you've realized are you're like happy uh, to? Okay, that's interesting. 
Because I, I think a lot of it is picking your battles, right? I know, like yes, you only have so much time on I know. set. And there aren't that many battles that you can actually win in low budget. You kind of, you kind of are at the, the mercy. Uh, something that just came up recently, which we've been doing for a while, is, OK, locations. For instance, we're, we're scouting locations. OK, great. Uh, as we went forward and scouted locations on these, lat on these two films that we're doing, I basically told a uh, location manager person, I said, no matter what, we can't have white walls. And they go, well, why? And I go, because photographically, it's just dreadful. It just light gets reflected everywhere, and the backgrounds are brighter than the faces usually, and it's just, it's just nasty. So we fight for locations with white walls. We fight to find locations with white walls. After having done this enough, I know that there's, no, there's very few instances where I can shoot what we need to shoot in as record time as we need to shoot it and light a, a set, a light a house with white walls well enough to get a good look. And if I turn in a bad look, it's photographically, it's reflective on the director as well as the director of photography. So no white walls. That's what I'll fight for. Great cast. That's what I'll fight for. Um, you know, there's no excuse for bad acting, even in non-SAG, low-budget films. No excuse for it. So you find the good actors. You find the best crew you can, you know. And the other thing I'll fight for is just let's have a fun time on this set and let's not have a stressful environment. And the producers are all in for that. Nobody wants to have that because we don't have a lot of money. The least you can do is treat people well, thank them, feed them properly, and send them home at a good hour. And I'll, I'll warn my crews. I say, if I bark or I get upset, if I say, let's go, we got to move, and I get a little bit testy, it's not because we're trying to get some amazing shot that will change cinema history. It's the fact that I want to get you in your car at 12 and a half hours so you're not falling asleep on the road and getting into a car accident. Because if you die because I wanted to get another setup, I'm going to talk to It's like, oh, yeah, Doug, like, I, if he asked me to work on a free project for him, I would do it in a heartbeat. Because everybody feels that, well, of what you're saying, of like, Oh yeah, he gets in and got out of here. Like he he pulls his weight. There's a lot of directors that like, you know, they'll end and they're like, all right, see you later. I'm in my car yeah, and they're there. Yeah. And they're like, Doug is the kind of guy that, you know, it's an hour later or something like that. And he's still there, like bringing like the couches and stuff into the moving truck and like making sure that everybody gets out on time. It's funny that you mention that. Now two things on that. First of all, I I no longer ask anybody to work for me for free. I did enough of that as a student. I will never do that again. <laughs> then then secondly. The, the thing that I've discovered is that when the director and the producer wait after we call rap and help rap, help move craft service to the truck, help put the furniture back together, help vacuum up, help coil cables, help push the carts back onto the truck or whatever they've got to do, it's not much of our time. It's 45 minutes to an hour of our time. But boy, does that buy a lot of mileage with the crew. The crew notices that and they go, Wow, these guys are good people. They really want us to go home on time. And sometimes I, I had this, I had this one uh, gaffer. His name was Phil. Get it, Phil Light. I thought it was funny. Anyway, and he would say, "We're going to go home late. We're going to go home late." And I would go, and then, you know, be, we'd have tail lights at twelve and a half. I'd go, "Hey, Phil," I said, "Got your tail lights at twelve and a half, buddy. Don't give me your crap. You got your home on time, you know." But but it means a lot when you do that. And yeah. and a lot of people, a lot of people, directors and producers go, "Hey." I have worked long enough in this business, 40 years in this business. I don't rap anymore. I've earned it. Great. You've earned it. Go home. That's great. I'll stick around and do it, even with my gray hair, in order just to send a message to the crew that we care about you, we love you, and we're there with you. And it does. It gets you a lot of mileage, especially if later on you go a little bit longer 
And a couple days later, you go, I'm so sorry, guys. You've built a little, you've banked a little bit of goodwill. So it's, I think that's important to do. A lot, I don't know any, anybody else who does that. Yeah, because you, you would do that on a student film. You do that on a student film. You guys, you guys have to go wrap the gear when you're done with this thing, right? You know, you don't go, hey, hey, can you go get that? No, you guys work together. So it's, it's that kind of thing. So then that's the, that's the last question, because that's the most, the most important question, I think, for anybody who's graduating film school. Because once you graduate, it's a whole different world. What are some tips to prevent you from getting fired your first day on set? What are some tips to prevent you getting fired the first day on set? Well, you know what? If you write the script and you own it and you haven't signed over the certificate of authorship and you basically own the movie, that's one way. You can sort of like forget to sign that over. Oh, gee, I just didn't have time to sign that contract. And you can hang on to the script that way. Don't do that. That's actually under the table. You don't know that. Um, be organized. Just be organized. If you, if you have your ducks in a row and you show up well organized and you've done the paperwork, everything that we ask you to do at good old Academy of Art University USA, to do your prep work, do your shot lists, do your overhead floor plans, do your storyboards, do your scene breakdowns, have that paperwork with you, show up on time, speak to the actors correctly, speak to the crew directly, know how to make a decision and people see, okay, that young director who's never done this before is incredibly organized. They would be foolish to get rid of you. You don't have to have a lot of talent. I, I'm living proof of that. You just need to be well organized and have your ducks in a row and be reliable. And you'll get hired again and again and again. They won't fire you because you're not a financial risk. Plus, if you work with actors and you know how to work with actors and you like working with actors, that's a large part of it. If you don't know how to talk to actors and deal with actors, that'll, that, that tension is, is noticed immediately. Do your job well and, and, and show up prepared, and that's how you won't get fired. And own the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. Probably the best advice you're going to get in any creative field, and of course the best advice in filmmaking, writing, directing, the craft that it takes to make your movie. And if you've ever dreamed about a career in filmmaking or in art and design, it's very important to go to the right school. And as more and more art and design career opportunities arise, even with this stay-at-home order, employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. At Academy of Art University, you will get the work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or, more importantly, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, fashion design, photography, UX design, and more, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash creativemind. Thanks for listening.